So in thinking about the topic for this morning in Genesis chapter 2, it struck me that Satan is a deceiver. The Bible says that Satan loves to lie to us, to deceive us, so that he can lead us away into eternal destruction. Satan is a deceiver. He's a liar. And one of his favorite lies is that God is not good. God cannot be trusted. God does not have your best interests in mind. That's one of Satan's favorite lies. And, and I think that might be one of the reasons why Moses, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, puts such emphasis on the fact that God is good. We saw that last week, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, all the way through to chapter 2 verse 3, where Moses tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and as Moses describes that, he highlights, we saw three attributes of God that Moses highlights, God's reality, God's sovereignty, and then a beautiful display of God's goodness. That was last week. And now this morning, Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25, Moses is going to show us even more of how good God is. So let's dig right in. Genesis chapter 2, let's start by reading verse 4. Here's what Moses writes. He says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now notice that first phrase. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. That phrase, that is the phrase, these are the generations, that's found 10 times in the book of Genesis. 10 times throughout the book. And Old Testament scholars say that what this means, that we're asking the question, what does these are the generations of the heavens and the earth mean? They say what that means is that Moses is telling us this is what happens now to the heavens and the earth that God created in Genesis chapter 1. So Moses has already described, here's what God did in creating the heavens and the earth. Now, here's what happens to the heavens and the earth. And this next session goes from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through to the end of chapter 4. So this is the section where now Moses explains, here's what happened to the heavens and the earth God created. And in chapter 2, Moses is going to set the stage for the tragedy of the fall of man, which we'll read about study, preach on next week in Genesis chapter 3. So the reason I want to highlight this is because what this shows is that Genesis 2 does not tell a different creation story than Genesis 1. Genesis 2 simply continues the story of creation that started in Genesis chapter 1. And as we study this, we're going to notice that Genesis 2, like homes in focus, focus, laser beam to this part of the earth on which God is going to create, plant the Garden of Eden. That's what happens in Genesis chapter 2. So let's ask, how does this story continue? And look at what Moses says in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground... And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, let's just pause there for a moment. Notice in verse 5, Moses emphasizes that God hadn't yet caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man created yet to till the land. 
And so that probably shows that these plants, no bush of the field, no small plants, the plants that were not there yet are plants that took rain to grow and cultivation, some person cultivating them, tilling the soil. So those kind of plants weren't here yet in this area which was going to become the Garden of Eden. Man, look at what God does in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now this is breathtaking. Hey, here's God. Adam had never existed before. He was not. And God takes a, a handful of dust, a, a handful of dirt, and from this handful of dirt, God creates Adam, a man, with DNA, with white blood cells, with eyes that work, with ears that hear, with a stomach that digests food, with legs and arms, with a mind that thinks out of this handful of dirt, God creates Adam and breathes life into him, and Adam is there alive. Imagine if you're Adam, right? How this happened? Of course, God tells him how this happens. But see, what this shows us is it's a beautiful picture of God's wisdom. I mean, think of how complex your body is. I mean, my stomach right now is digesting this morning's breakfast, and I don't need to think about it. It's like, oh, I forgot the gastric juices. Oh, it, no, gastric juices just go to work, right? Start, right? That's clear, right? Okay? I mean, our bodies are amazingly, automatically, you cut yourself, right? You don't need to put a list of things to do. Send clot, clotting agents to my finger. No, your body automatically does that. Hello, do you get this? I mean, our bodies are so incredibly complex. And God created these bodies out of I mean, Adam's body, out of dirt, showing God's wisdom, showing God's power, and showing God's goodness. This is a beautiful display of what God's done. Then, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, here's a map showing where scholars think Eden was located. We read here that it was to the east, which means it was to the east of, of Israel, okay? And, and notice, so this is one area up here which is modern-day Turkey. That's a possibility. Other possibility is down here in modern-day Iran or Iraq because they're connected with the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, which we'll read about in a moment or in this area. So understand, the Garden of Eden isn't like up there in space somewhere. It was here on planet Earth. All this happened in history thousands of years ago here on planet Earth. So God planted a garden in Eden, and he put Adam there. And then Moses goes into more detail about what God puts into this garden. Verse 9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I just pause there. Again, do you see God's goodness? He creates Adam, amazing body, places him in this garden. And then he plants banana trees, right? Apricot trees, pear trees. Banana trees, I already said banana trees, almonds, cashews, right? What are, what's your favorite fruit? I mean, so here God, and, and they're beautiful and 
fruit-bearing trees. I mean, I just, I'd like to think about Adam the first time he like pulled this big, juicy peach off of a tree and sunk his teeth into it. It's like, oh God, you are awesome. So did you see the goodness of God? Moses wants to continue to, to highlight for us how good God is. Now, rest of verse nine. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we're going to come back to these trees in a moment. Keep them in mind, though. Keep reading. Verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So God has this irrigation water right there available. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Okay, now let's just step back and think about what Moses has told us so far. At one moment, Adam didn't even exist. And then... By pure goodness, God created Adam out of a pile of dirt, gave him an amazing functioning body, breathed life into him, and placed him in this beautiful garden full of luscious, fruit-bearing trees. Now, does God do this because he wants to oppress Adam? Because he wants to enslave or tyrannize Adam? Not at all. God does this because simply he wants to do good for Adam. See, God loves doing good for undeserving people. And so we're going to come back to this this morning, but I just want to raise this question at this point. How do you see God? I mean, think really truly. When you think of God, how do you view him? Do you see him as oppressive? Do you see him as a tyrant, as a, like an, as a slave master of some sort? Yeah, that is not at all what we are seeing here in Genesis 2 or Genesis 1. What we've seen is that God is giving, and he is giving, and he is giving some more. That's God. Everything God has done, he has done for the benefit of mankind. Everything. So what Moses wants us to, to be feeling at this point is, God is perfectly good, flawlessly good. Every single action he has taken from the very beginning of Genesis is good, 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 and more good. God loves to do good for people. Now that's important to note because of what we read next, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, what does it mean to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What does that mean? Now, we could sit back and think, well, what, it might mean this, it might mean that. But there's a simpler way to answer questions like that. And it's by looking at other places in the Bible where that phrase, 
knowledge of good and evil is used. And there's one other place that's very helpful to understand what that phrase means. It's Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39. We won't turn there, but just jot that reference down. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39. And what we read here is about little children, infants, who do not have the knowledge of good and evil, which means they're not yet old enough to know for themselves, to figure out for themselves what is good and what is evil. Little, little, little kids don't yet have the capacity to decide for themselves what is good and evil. So eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would mean deciding for yourself what is good and evil. It would mean making up your own mind about what is good and evil. Here's how one Old Testament scholar, Victor Hamilton, puts it in his commentary on Genesis. He says, what is forbidden to man is the power to decide for himself what is in his best interests and what is not. Now, now why is that forbidden for us? Well, it's because, I mean, picture Adam. He's, he's just been created, right? He's seen, look at what God, God has just given me life in this body, in this garden. This is fantastic. Look at what God has given to me. And now God is simply saying to, to Adam, now trust me, I made you. I'm your creator. I know what is good for you and what is evil for you. So trust me, I know. Don't try to decide for yourself what is good or, for, good or evil. You don't know. Trust your creator. The creator knows what is good for the creatures. The creator knows what is evil for the creatures. We can trust the creator. He's good. We can trust him. Now, this is huge. And here's one specific application I want to bring, and that is this. Whenever you face any kind of temptation, every kind of temptation, we have to decide, are we going to trust what God says is good and evil? Or are we going to try to decide for ourselves what is good and evil? Right? Because a temptation is calling us to reject what God says is good and evil and to choose for ourselves what is good and evil. Do you see that? Every single temptation is the question, am I going to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or not? So, for example, God commands our creator who's made us, who's made sexual relations. He says sexual relations should only take place in the context of marriage. Our creator has said, this is what's good. Anything outside of that, it, it is evil. Okay, so here's what this means. If you're sleeping with your girlfriend, you're choosing not to trust God's goodness you're not trusting that God is good and that he knows what is good and evil for you. You're deciding for yourself what is good and evil. You're eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God has said, if nothing changes, you will die. That's what he says, right? Did you see that? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You die spiritually, you will end up dying eternally. Judgment from God. Another example. Our good creator God says we should not gossip. We shouldn't speak harmfully of people. You know how gossip is, how it happens. God says don't gossip. Speak well of people. Don't gossip. And so again, our good creator God, who has shown that he's perfectly good, we can completely trust him. He said you can trust me. Gossip is not good for you. Gossip is evil. It is harmful for you. So when we gossip... We've chosen not to trust God. We've chosen to reject what God says is good and evil. We've chosen to decide for ourselves what is good and evil. And we have 
eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And unless something changes, we will die. That's what Moses wants us to understand. So Genesis 2 up to this point, what we want to see is that God has done beautiful good for Adam up to this point. We've seen God's heart, and all that has flowed out of God's heart is just good, 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 incredible good, lavish good, amazing good. God's heart has just been a pure outflow of good. Genesis 1, Genesis 2. God is perfectly, flawlessly good. We've seen that in this passage. He's given and given and given to Adam, showing that he is perfectly good, and you can trust him when he says, I know what's good and evil. You can trust him. Now, there's another way that Moses wants to show us God's goodness. It's what God does next. This is really beautiful. What does God do next? Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, this is interesting because in verse 17, God has called Adam to trust that God is good and that his heart is to do good for man. And now in verse 18, we see a beautiful illustration of this. Okay, so God looks down at Adam. And again, think about, we're talking about God here. I mean, think about how big God is, right? He spoke and a universe existed. God has existed from eternity past with no beginning. God is so massively big. And now this massively big God, down, 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 solar system, down, 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 planet Earth, down, down. Here's Adam and, and God notices Adam is lacking something good. Does that, does that show you a dimension of God's goodness? I mean, God is so big, so beautiful, so glorious, and God notices Adam's lacking something good. Do you see that? Isn't that amazing? When you're lacking something good, God always notices. He cares. He loves. Here's another display of God's goodness. He notices that Adam is lacking something good. So God says, it is not good that Adam is alone. And as we're going to see, God takes care of this by bringing him a companion, specifically Eve, a wife. Guess what God's going to do? But now before we get there, this does raise a question that I think we have to answer at this point. And that is, if it's not good that people, man, woman, be alone, then why is it that God calls some men, some women, to be single? The question just rises up out of this passage. If it's good, if it's not good that people be alone, why does God call, like Paul, for example, to be single? Why is that? And the answer is that our being alone can be satisfied in other ways besides marriage. It's not just marriage. It's not the only way that God satisfies this aloneness. That's why God created the church, okay? the church of Jesus Christ. Friends coming together who've been born again by faith alone in Christ alone through what Jesus did, his finished work on the cross. We have God's spirit dwelling in us. We love each other. We're friends together. We care for each other. We bear each other's burdens. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We lay our lives down for each other. God's formed the church. So if God has called you, at least at this point in your life, to be single, go deep in relationships with the church. Don't pull back. It's not good for you to be alone. 
connect with your brothers and sisters in Christ, become part of a home group, become part of the Christ-centered community. That's why God created, one of the reasons God created the church. He's calling you to pursue loving friendships in the body of Christ. Okay, but now there's a danger at this point that I have to address, and that is we could think from what I just said that your husband or your wife or your friend they're going to fully satisfy your heart. It's not good that I'm alone. So my wife, she's going to like fully satisfy my heart. My husband, my friend. No. As wonderful as your wife is, she won't fully satisfy your heart. Nor will your husband, nor will your friend. Husbands, wives, friends, precious gifts from God. They will not satisfy your heart though. There's only one way your heart can be completely and fully satisfied. And that's in another relationship. Relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is so important to understand. Friends, marriage, wonderful gifts from God. But don't make the mistake of thinking that friends or your spouse will fully satisfy your heart. They never will. Only God can fully satisfy your heart. Now, you might be thinking, that's bad news for me because I've sinned so much against God. There's no way he'd ever have a relationship with me. And you're right. We've all sinned so much against God that if it was just about who we are, he could never have a relationship with us. But don't forget, God is good. What constantly flows out of God's heart is love and good. And so what did God do? You know, most of you, maybe some of you don't. This is the best news in the world if you've never heard this. 2,000 years ago, God sent his own son, Jesus, to earth. God came to earth in the person of Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross, suffered a horrifyingly brutal and lengthy death, being punished in our place for our sins. And so not by trying to be good enough, but simply by turning your heart from sin and saying, Jesus, I trust you. Forgive me. Change me. Satisfy me. And the moment you do that, you'll be completely forgiven. Reconciled to God. And in that relationship with God, you will have times in your life when God so pours his love into your heart that you are completely filled and satisfied. God will fill and satisfy your heart. Friends, wonderful gifts. Wife, wonderful gift. Husband, wonderful gift. But no human can fully satisfy your heart. Only God will fully satisfy your heart. Are we clear on that? So crucial. So with that explanation, back to the passage. Again, Moses wants us to see another display of God's goodness. Here's Moses lacking something, and the God of the universe notices. Okay? It is not good that Adam is alone. Adam's lacking human companionship. And so what God does next, we know he's going to end up bringing him Eve, but what he does next is, seems a little strange. Verses 19 and 20. So God's noticed Adam lacks a companion. So verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So God sees that Adam is alone, doesn't have a companion. God's planning on bringing him Eve. So why does God first bring him animals? Doesn't that seem strange? I mean, think about Adam. God's noticed I need a companion. And I've seen God is really good. And he's incredibly wise. And he's amazingly powerful. I just, I can't wait to see what God's going to bring me. Okay, God, what do you have? A camel. We'll call him a camel, okay. A coyote, okay. You're a beautiful creator. A monkey, okay. Delightful. So, but no companion, no companion, no companion. So what's God doing? Why does God do this? I think what God's doing is he is setting the stage for this incredible gift that God is going to bring Adam. And we know God is infinitely powerful, perfectly good, and he's noticed that Adam needs a companion, needs a, a helper fit for him. So we know what God's going to do is awesome, because this is who God is. And this, this lineup of animals, names, Adam names them, names them, but no companion, no companion, no companion, okay? This just builds our expectancy for what God's going to do next. Verse 21. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. And notice those first three words that Adam says. This at last, okay? I've camels, coyotes, monkeys, naming them, naming them, naming them. This at last now. Here's a companion. She's wonderful, God. She's beautiful. She's, she's like me and yet beautifully not like me. Thank you so much. What an incredible gift. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She's a companion. I think it was Martin Luther who used to call his wife, my rib. Didn't he? Good morning, my rib. <laughs> and it was a compliment, okay? So men, try this out. I mean, you may want to say to your wife next time you see her in a romantic moment, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. It, she'll just melt. Maybe not. Anyway, whatever. Okay, so here's the question. So what does Moses want us to learn from this account? Okay, again, this is, this is history. This happened. But Moses wrote this to, to teach us. This is, this is the first chapters of God's book, the book of Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible. These are the first chapters of God's word. What does Moses want to teach us? What does the Holy Spirit want to teach us through what Moses wrote? And I think there's two key truths, two truths. Moses wants us to take from this passage. The first is in verses 24 and 25. Notice that first word, therefore. So here Moses is bringing out one of the, one of the points from this passage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
Okay, notice that word therefore. This is the truth Moses wants us to come away with from this passage. And verse 24 is a very important verse in the Bible. It's quoted by Jesus in the Gospels. It's quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians. It's a crucial verse for understanding marriage. So what is the truth that Moses wants us to learn about marriage? First of all, that marriage is God's idea, right? God planned marriage. It's not just something we humans came up with. This is God's idea. And that marriage is to be between a man and a woman. It's clear from this passage. We learn that man takes the initiative, leaves his father and mother, forms a new household. So the man takes the initiative to form this new household. We learn that the man holds fast to his wife. It's this beautiful Hebrew word, dabak, which means you, you cleave, you cling, you love, you embrace, you pursue. So men, you're pursuing your wife for the rest of your life, right? She's your wife. You're not pursuing any other woman. You're pursuing her. You're cleaving to her. You're clinging to her. And then they become one flesh. That includes the sexual relationship, but much more than that. It's a picture of beautiful, personal, relational, emotional, spiritual closeness. You're like one flesh, one person, pursuing this closeness with your wife, with your husband. Okay, so marriage is a gift given to us by a beautifully good God. Do you see that? It's a gift given to us by God. So for those of you who are married, I want to call you in a fresh way these next weeks to honor God's gift of marriage. Are you honoring this precious gift of marriage that God's given to you? Honor God's gift of marriage. So love your spouse. Serve your spouse. Forgive your spouse, right? Thank God for your spouse. Move, move close to your spouse. Oh, it's so heartbreaking that over years with pain and disappointments and hurts, walls can get built up and distance can, can come. Don't let that move you away from this one flesh closeness. And there can be pain as you press in. You may need to have some help from the body of Christ to help you, you press in. But oh, move towards closeness. This one flesh, one person, one heart relationship that God has for us. So honor the gift of marriage. Are you honoring the gift of marriage? Second truth I want to point out. The truth, we've been talking about it all through the passage, that God is perfectly good and that we should trust his perfect goodness. Now, none of us are trusting God's goodness as much as we should. I hope you're trusting God's goodness, but he wants to strengthen all of us in that. We should trust God. He's perfectly good. We should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We should not think we can decide on our own against God's will what is good and evil. He's our creator. He knows what's good for us. We should trust him. He's shown that he's good. We should trust him. So here's the question I want you to ask yourself. In what area of your life are you not trusting God's goodness? Just ask the Lord. Lord, come and show me. 
none of us here is trusting God's goodness perfectly. Each one of us has at least one area in our lives where we are not trusting his goodness as fully as we should. So what area are you not trusting God's goodness? For example, are you not forgiving that person? You know, that person. Even though perfectly good God has said, what's good is to forgive. What's evil is not to forgive. Are you not forgiving that person? Or are you looking at things on the internet that God has said are evil, not good? Some of you may be going through painful trials right now, hardships, difficulties, some suffering. And it is so easy at those times to doubt that God is good. But listen, through the rest of the scriptures, what, what we see is that God is always perfectly good. And when trials come, they are, this might be hard to believe, they are gifts from God. Every trial is a gift from God, a gift of more of God for you, more of God's nearness, more of God's closeness, deeper relationship with God. God may, as you pray, deliver you from that trial beautifully. So he may be bringing it and end up taking it away, or he may bring it and allow it to stay. But every time a trial comes, whether God's going to remove it or allow it to stay, it's a good gift from God. It's just all through the Bible. And I think that sometimes God brings these trials to us, and to speak metaphorically, there's tears in his eyes because it, the pain that you're going through is difficult for him because he loves you. But the good that's going to come to you, the, the, the closeness with God, the, the enlarging of your heart to go deep in God. Listen, there are truths about God and there's depths of knowing God that you'll never know through prosperity, that you will only know through trials. And so in God's goodness, he allows trials to come. Are you trusting God's goodness through the trials? Fight to see his goodness. Are you neglecting fellowship? Another example. Even though perfectly good God says you need brothers and sisters in Christ around you. Are you, are you part of a, of a community, a tribe, a clan of believers who are following Christ together? That's what we're forming in our home groups. Do all you can to link up with the home group. Get relationships. Have brothers and sisters who, who know your heart, know your struggles, are praying for you. You know their heart. You know their struggles. You're praying for them. It's beautiful. Are you neglecting fellowship, though? One more example. Are you neglecting time in your own personal schedule where you nurture love for God and his holy son Jesus through prayer and through study of God's word? Are you neglecting that time? Even though the perfectly good God says, this is where your greatest joys will be. This is where fullness of heart will come. There's lots of other examples, but, but just ask yourself, in what area of your life? Again, we've all got them. No one should be thinking, well, I've got this one down. I'm trusting God perfectly. He's good. I know it. You're not thinking hard enough. Ask your wife. Okay, ask your husband. They'll tell you, right? Ask your close friend. In what area of your life are you not trusting God's goodness? Do you have one in mind? Okay, now, what Moses wants us to do is just to think about how good God is, as we've seen in this passage. Here's God. He created Adam. 
out of dust of the earth, breathed life, gave him life, gave him a body, out of the sheer overflow of goodness of his heart. He planted a garden for Adam, filled with beautiful, fruit-bearing trees. Just goodness, goodness, goodness. He created rivers that would water this garden for Adam. He saw that it was not good for Adam to have no companion. He created Eve for Adam as a helper fit for him. So good, 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 and more good, just flowing out of God. Again, all we've seen from God's heart is just this, this outflow of good. There's, there's no evil in there. There's no, you know, treachery. There's no deceit. There's just outflow of good. It's God's heart, pure, unadulterated, 100% pure good is what flows out of God's heart. We've seen it here. It's always true. You have every reason to trust God. This is history. This actually happened thousands of years ago to show us that God is good and that we have every reason to trust him. Now, all of us have failed in this. Not one of us has done this perfectly, which is why it's so important to once again remind ourselves about the cross, which is the center of everything for us, the cross of Jesus Christ. Because we, as we are, can turn to Jesus. We don't need to change first. We can't change first. We don't only change by coming to him first. So we come to him as we are and say, I've not been trusting your goodness. I've been bitter about a trial. I've been looking at things on the internet I shouldn't be looking at. I've been neglecting fellowship, whatever it might be. I want to turn from that though now and I want to trust you. Forgive me, Lord Jesus. Change my heart. I can't change my own heart. You can change my heart. Change my heart and fill and satisfy my heart with your presence and your love. And he will. You'll be assured of forgiveness. Your heart will be changing and you'll be satisfied with outpourings of his love. So two takeaways. Honor your marriage. Honor God's gift of marriage. Love your wife, love your husband, press in, move in, be close, care, serve, love, honor your marriage, and then trust God's goodness. Don't decide on your own what is good and evil. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Trust God's will about what is good and what is evil. Honor your marriage. Trust God's goodness. Let's stand together and pray. God, I pray that you'd bring your power upon us right now as a people. We praise you that no matter what we've done, no matter how much we haven't trusted you, that you, Jesus Christ, are standing before us with open arms. You're saying, come. You're saying, come. And that we can come to you as we are, turning from sin, repenting of our sin, coming to you as we are, and you will forgive us. You will change our hearts. You will satisfy us. But we need to come. 
So I pray that you'd work in each of our hearts, every single one of us in this room, that in a fresh way now we'd come. Turning from that area where we haven't been trusting your goodness, that we would trust you. So Lord, forgive us, change us, and satisfy us, I pray. In Jesus' name.